You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. In this week's episode, we're pleased to share with you some words from John F. Kennedy's Profiles and Courage. On January 1st, 1956, the New York Times had this to say about Profiles and Courage. In this unfortunate state of affairs, it is refreshing and enlightening to have a first-rate politician write a thoughtful and persuasive book about political integrity. Senator Kennedy writes from the dual eminence of a perceptive and reflective mind and of practical first-hand political experience. Like many able, younger members of Congress, he is brooded over the role of the legislature and the legislator, their weaknesses and unrealized potentials, and whether, indeed, the days of the giants are gone forever. He crystallized these meditations during the course of a long convalescence last spring. He is no dilettante at his trade, but a solid journeyman, full of ideals, but few illusions. His book is the sort to restore respect for a venerable and much-abused profession. I'm rereading pieces of Profiles in Courage a week before the 2016 election, and I'm finding it very, very comforting, and I expect that listening to these words will have the same effect on you. We're going to share with you three excerpts. The first from 2003 in an introduction to the body of work that was written by Ambassador Caroline Kennedy, where she talks about her father's emphasis on public service. And we'll also share excerpts from Courage and Politics and excerpts from The Time and the Place. And in sharing these pieces with you, we hope that we are able to sort of put a little bit of historical perspective around everything that we're all likely experiencing this week and everything that has happened in this political season. There's a nice quote on the back of the print book that says, a nation which has forgotten the quality of courage, which in the past has been brought to public life, is not as likely to insist upon or reward that quality in its chosen leaders today. And in fact, we have forgotten. So let us never forget. And let us listen now to excerpts from John F. Kennedy's Profiles in Courage. My father taught us all that we are never too old or too young for public service. President Kennedy's inaugural challenge, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, summed up his own life and career and rings as true today as it did 40 years ago. To me, his commanding legacy lives in the thousands of Americans he inspired to get involved in their communities, schools, neighborhoods, the Civil Rights Movement, and the Peace Corps. Our country was transformed by the energy and dedication of a generation. Now it is up to us to redefine that commitment for our own time. John F. Kennedy began his public service career as a PT boat commander in the South Pacific in World War II. While on patrol on the night of August 2, 1943, a Japanese destroyer, the Amagiri, rammed the PT-109, which exploded into flames, throwing crew members into the burning water. Two were killed, and one was burned so badly he couldn't swim. Clutching a strap of the injured man's life jacket in his teeth, 
Lieutenant Kennedy towed the wounded sailor to the nearest island three miles away. For the next six days, with little food or water, the men hid, fearing they would be captured by the Japanese. Each evening, Kennedy swam through the shark-infested waters to other islands seeking help, until he was spotted by two Solomon Islanders, Eroni Kumana and Biyuku Gaza. They picked a coconut, onto which Kennedy carved a message, which they took to the hideout of a nearby Australian coast watcher who arranged rescue. In the summer of 2002, a National Geographic expedition found that the legend of John F. Kennedy's courage lives on in the remote Solomon Islands. Using remotely operated vehicles with underwater cameras, explorer Robert Ballard and his team discovered the sunken PT-109. Expedition members met Eroni Kumana, the man whose simple canoe saved my father's life and changed the course of history, and his son, John F. Kennedy Kumana. My father's bravery earned him the Navy and Marine Corps Medal for extremely heroic conduct and a Purple Heart for his injuries. It also led to profiles and courage. The collision with a Japanese destroyer left him with a spinal injury which required surgery in the winter of 1954 and 1955. Elected to the Senate two years before, my father was interested in understanding the qualities which make a great senator. History was his passion, and he spent his months of recuperation reading the chronicles of his legendary predecessors. To both my parents, history was not a dull, dry affair, but a constant source of inspiration. They believed that they're truly our heroes, and we can all learn from their example. My father's heroes were men and women who were willing to risk their careers to do what was right for our country. Profiles and Courage, published in 1956, tells their stories. As senator and as president, in foreign policy and domestic affairs, John F. Kennedy showed a similar kind of courage. In 1962, when he discovered that the Soviets were building offensive nuclear missile bases in Cuba, President Kennedy resisted calls for an immediate airstrike and pursued a course of diplomacy that averted the catastrophe of nuclear war. His grace under pressure and his brilliant judgment during the Cuban Missile Crisis led to a new chapter in Soviet-American relations and made it possible to negotiate the first treaty banning the testing of nuclear weapons in the atmosphere, outer space, and underwater. In a speech he gave the summer after the Cuban Missile Crisis, President Kennedy spoke of peace. He said, Let us not be blind to our differences, but let us also direct attention to our common interests and to the means by which those differences can be resolved. And if we cannot end our differences, at least we can help make the world safe for diversity. For in the final analysis, our most common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future. And we are all mortal. In 1963, when cities across the South were burning with the long-delayed promise of civil rights, and local police attacked the nonviolent demonstrators with fire hoses and police dogs, President Kennedy put the full power of the federal government on the side of those seeking integration because it was the right thing to do. In a televised address to the nation, the same night that he mobilized the Alabama National Guard 
to admit two black students to the University of Alabama under federal court order, President Kennedy said, We are confronted primarily with a moral issue. It is as old as the scriptures and is as clear as the American Constitution. The heart of the question is whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities, whether we are going to treat our fellow Americans as we want to be treated. In the same speech, he announced that he would send to Congress legislation outlawing discrimination in all public facilities, legislation that would become the Civil Rights Act of 1964, passed after his death. Because my father studied history and understood the complexity of courage, he understood its simple power as well. He believed that telling the stories of those who act on principle regardless of the cost can help inspire future generations to follow their example. Our nation needs to recognize leadership, to respect it, and to require it of our leaders. John F. Kennedy's life and career has inspired millions of people around the world and shown the truth of Andrew Jackson's statement, one man of courage makes a majority. Our family has honored my father's commitment to public service by celebrating that commitment in others. In 1989, we established the Profile and Courage Award, presented annually to an elected official who stands fast for the ideals upon which this country was founded, often at great personal risk. These men and women, Republican and Democrat, serving at the local, state, and national level, are the heirs to the eight legendary senators chronicled in this book. Our collective definition of courage has expanded since Profiles in Courage was written. Today, we honor those with the courage to compromise, as well as those who stay the course. Congresswoman Hilda Solis, who grew up in one of America's most polluted communities, spearheaded the fight for the nation's first environmental justice law when she was a young Latina state senator in California. Arguing that toxic and hazardous waste facilities were located near minority and low-income neighborhoods in disproportionate numbers, Solis successfully marshaled support for the landmark bill. Overcoming strong opposition, compromising when she had to, Solis worked with political and business leaders to secure passage of pioneering legislation requiring that all communities be treated fairly with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws. Congressman John Lewis received an unprecedented Profile and Courage Award for lifetime achievement in recognition of his career of moral courage, a pioneer in the civil rights movement and one of the principal organizers of the March on Washington in 1963, Lewis often risked his life to challenge segregation during the Freedom Rides and to secure the right to vote for African Americans. Despite more than 40 arrests, physical attacks, and brutal beatings, he has never wavered in his devotion to the philosophy of nonviolence. His life has been distinguished by extraordinary courage and devotion to building America into a beloved community. The Profile and Courage Award also honors uniquely courageous actions. For example, President Gerald Ford received the Profile and Courage Award for his pardon of Richard Nixon. Ford realized that America needed to begin healing from the wounds of Watergate and that he was the only man who could make that possible. One month after Ford became president, he pardoned Nixon, knowing that it could cost him the presidency. He lost to Jimmy Carter by a narrow margin in 1976. Just as my father's presidency represented a call to action, 
So public service has been redefined in our time by September 11th. The heartbreaking events of that day brought to families, communities, and to our nation overwhelming loss. But in those terrible moments, ordinary men and women put their own lives on the line in order that others might be spared, making real the face of courage and inspiring a new generation to want to serve others. The bravery of our public servants, firefighters, police, medical teams, elected officials, saved thousands of lives. We gained a renewed admiration for the men and women of our armed forces who make courage their career. The civilians who demonstrated extraordinary bravery at the Pentagon, the World Trade Center, and in the sky showed us that the capacity for courage and for service is within us all. Each one of us must find the gift we have to give. As Martin Luther King said in one of the last sermons he gave before his death, you don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love, and you can be that servant. Caroline Kennedy, December 2002. Courage and Politics. These are stories about that most admirable of human virtues. Courage. Grace under pressure, Ernest Hemingway defined it. And these are stories of the pressures experienced by eight United States senators and the grace with which they endured them, the risks to their careers, the unpopularity of their courses, the defamation of their characters, and sometimes, but sadly only sometimes, the vindication of their reputations and their principles. Today, the challenge of political courage looms larger than ever before for our everyday life is becoming so saturated with the tremendous powers of mass communication that any unpopular or unorthodox course arouses a storm of protests, such as John Quincy Adams under attack in 1807 could never have envisioned. Our political life is becoming so expensive, so mechanized, and so dominated by professional politicians and public relations men that the idealist who dreams of independent statesmanship is rudely awakened by the necessities of election and accomplishment. And our public life is becoming so increasingly centered upon that seemingly unending war to which we have given the curious epithet cold that we tend to encourage rigid ideological unity and orthodox patterns of thought. Thus, in the days ahead, only the very courageous will be able to take the hard and unpopular decisions necessary for our survival in the struggle with a powerful enemy an enemy with leaders who need give little thought to the popularity of their course, who need pay little tribute to the public opinion they themselves manipulate, and who may face, without fear of retaliation at the polls, their citizens to sacrifice present laughter for future glory. And only the very courageous will be able to keep alive the spirit of individualism and dissent which gave birth to this nation, nourished it as an infant, and carried it through its severest tests upon the attainment of its maturity. We shall need compromises in the days ahead, to be sure, but these will be, or should be, compromises of issues, not of principles. We can compromise our political positions, but not ourselves. 
we can resolve the clash of interests without conceding our ideals. Compromise need not mean cowardice. Indeed, it is frequently the compromisers and conciliators who are faced with the severest test of political courage as they oppose the extremist views of their constituents. It was because Daniel Webster conscientiously favored compromise in 1850 that he earned a condemnation unsurpassed in the annals of political history. His is a story worth remembering today. So, I believe, are the stories of other senators of courage, men whose abiding loyalty to their nation triumphed over all personal and political considerations, men who showed the real meaning of courage and a real faith in democracy, men who made the Senate of the United States something more than a mere collection of robots dutifully recording the views of their constituents, or a gathering of time servers skilled only in predicting and following the tides of public sentiment. Some of these men whose stories follow were right in their beliefs. Others, perhaps, were not. Some were ultimately vindicated by a return to popularity. Many were not. Some showed courage throughout the whole of their political lives. Others sail with the wind until the decisive moment when their conscience and events propel them into the center of the storm. Some were courageous in their unyielding devotion to absolute principles. Others were damned for advocating compromise. Whatever their differences, the American politicians whose stories are here retold shared that one heroic quality, courage. The Time and the Place As our first story begins in 1803, Washington was no more than a raw country village. In the unfinished capital sat the Senate of the United States, already vastly different from that very first Senate which had sat in the old New York City Hall in 1789, and even more different from the body originally planned by the makers of the Constitution in 1787. The Founding Fathers' concept of the Senate, in contrast to the House, was of a body which would not be subject to constituent pressures. Each state, regardless of size and population, was to have the same number of senators. Senators were not to be elected by popular vote. The state legislatures, which could be relied upon to represent the conservative property interests of each state, were assigned that function. In this way, said Delegate John Dickinson to the Constitutional Convention, the Senate would consist of the most distinguished characters, distinguished for their rank in life and their weight of property, and bearing as strong a likeness to the British House of Lords as possible. Moreover, the Senate was to be less of a legislative body, where heated debates on vital issues would be followed anxiously by the public, and more of an executive council, passing on appointments and treaties and generally advising the president without public galleries or even a journal of its own proceedings. The original 22 United States senators meeting in New York in 1789 at first seemed to fulfill the expectations of the makers of the Constitution. The Senate, as compared with the House of Representatives, was on the whole far more pompous and formal, its chambers far more elaborate, and its members far more concerned with the elegance of dress and social rank. Although senators were paid in the munificent sum of $6 per day, and their privileges included the use of great silver snuff boxes on the Senate floor, the aristocratic manners which had characterized the first Senate were strangely out of place when the struggling hamlet of Washington became the capital city in 1800, for its rugged surroundings contrasted sharply with those enjoyed at the temporary capitals in New York and Philadelphia. 
John Quincy Adams noted in his diary that some of his colleagues' speeches were so wild and so bluntly expressed as to be explained only by recognizing that the member was inflamed by drink. But certainly the Senate retained greater dignity than the House, where members might sit with hat on head and feet on desk, watching John Randolph of Roanoke stride in wearing silver spurs, followed by a foxhound which slept beneath his desk, and calling to the doorkeeper for more liquor as he launched vicious attacks upon his opponents. Nevertheless, the House, still small enough to be a truly deliberative body, overshadowed the Senate in terms of political power during the first three decades of our government. But as the Senate shed its role as executive council and entered on a more equal basis with the House into the legislative process, it also became apparent that no constitutional safeguards, however nobly created, could prevent political and constituent pressures from entering deliberations. It was a time of change in the Senate, in the concept of our government, in the growth of the two-party system, in the spread of democracy to the farm and the frontier and in the United States of America. Men who were flexible, men who could move with or ride over the changing currents of public opinion, men who sought their glory in the dignity of the Senate rather than its legislative accomplishments, these were the men for such times. But young John Quincy Adams of Massachusetts was not such a man. Thanks for listening. We hope that you've enjoyed what you've heard, and if you have, that you'll subscribe. To do so, you just go to your podcast app, search for Harper Audio Presents, and click subscribe. That way, you'll never miss a conversation of publisher plus author plus microphone.